0: everyone. It's been a while since I've had the chance to preach at the online campus, so let me just say hello and reintroduce myself. My name is Rachel Keeler, and I'm the campus pastor at our Lexington campus. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for welcoming me into your home or your car or your office or wherever you're watching from. As we get started today, I want to invite you to think about a decision in your life, either one that you're in the process of making or one that you recently made. It doesn't have to be a major life-shaping decision. It could be something relatively small and fleeting. Your plans for the Super Bowl later today. What book to read or what show to watch next? Whether it's time for a new hairstyle? Do you have a decision or two in mind? So now, let me ask you this. What kind of a decision-maker are you? When faced with a decision, do you place a higher value on thoroughness or efficiency? Do you tend to make decisions slowly and deliberately weighing all the options, considering all the factors, getting lots of advice. Are you sometimes paralyzed by indecision? Those of you who fall into this camp are probably still trying to decide which decision to think about. That's okay. You can just put that decision on hold for now. Or maybe you're more on the impulsive side. You don't wanna be slowed down by too much reflection or distracted by other people's opinions. You just wanna make a decision and get it over with. Maybe you're in the camp that says, you think long, you think wrong. Give you a coin to flip and you're good to go. Or rock, paper, scissors, best of three. I had to make a decision this week about Easter service times at the Lexington campus. That might not sound like that big a decision, but believe me, a lot of people had conflicting ideas about it, and I went back and forth and back and forth. I really wanted to just put some numbers in a hat and shoes that way, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. It took me a long time to make that decision. Online campus, you are very fortunate that you can all go to Easter service at the exact same time or at all different times, and it will work fine either way. You guys have it made. Whatever kind of decision maker you are, I want to invite you to just keep that in mind as we go today, and we'll circle back to it later. By the time we're done today, you're going to have an opportunity to make a decision that really matters. All through this winter teaching series, we've been talking about the new thing that God is doing in and through Jesus— particularly focusing on Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God. And as we come to the end of the series today, two things that have been more or less implicit the whole time will come to the surface. First, each week of the series, we've talked about when God does something new, but one important truth has mostly been implicit up to now, that God is always doing something new. And second, we've been focused on the beginning of things, but at some point in every beginning, the beginning comes to an end, the new thing is now launched, and everyone around that new thing faces a decision. Will we join that new thing? Will we buy into it or adopt it or get involved with it or not? So as we come to this last week, let's review where we've been and where we are now. We started in week one with the opening words of Jesus's ministry. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And we learned that when God does a new thing, He always prepares the way by pointing us to Jesus. Whatever new thing God wants to do in your life this year, He's been preparing you for it all your life. In week two, we focused on Jesus' baptism, rediscovering that in Jesus' life and ministry, something new and climactic was happening, and still is, and that participation in that new thing requires repentance. Week three was all about Jesus's message. When Jesus teaches, big things happen. And so when God does something new in our lives or in the church or in the world, it's always grounded in the compelling, disturbing, life-changing message of Jesus, which we're invited both to believe and to share. Two weeks ago, we learned that when God does something new, it always upsets the status quo in our personal lives as well as in the church. And since God is always doing something new, we should probably always be ready for our status quo to get upset. And then last week, Pastor Tim showed us that when God does something new, it involves healing in seen and unseen ways. So once again today, we'll be in the early chapters of Mark. And as we learned earlier in the series, while chapter one showcases Jesus's growing popularity, in chapter two, the menacing face of opposition starts to emerge. Our passage for today comes right in the middle of that rising tension. If you want to take out your Bible or open your Bible app, we'll be in Mark 2, 13-17, The Call of Levi. Pastor Brian spoke a few weeks ago about inductive Bible study and what a profound impact that method has had on his life and ministry. And together, we've been making observations, interpretations, and applications as we've worked our way through the opening chapters of Mark. Today, I want to add in another tool that has had a profound impact on my own faith and ministry, which is the imagination. Praying imaginatively with stories from the Gospels has been one of the biggest helps for me as I've tried to grow closer to Jesus. So today, we'll walk through the passage, observing and interpreting and applying as we go, but we'll also use our imaginations to try to fill in some of the details Mark doesn't provide and to try to put ourselves in Levi's sandals as he makes the decision to follow Jesus. Just one other quick note before we dive in. The disciple whom Mark calls Levi here is called Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. Jews at that time often went by more than one name, especially if their given name was a common one. So his given name was probably Levi, but Matthew seems to have been the name he was more known by, and we'll use both today. So let's jump right in. Mark 2, 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Right away, we see Jesus's immense popularity and crowd appeal. He's just walking next to the lake when a large crowd comes to him, hungry for his teaching. Mark's quick pace seems to imply that Jesus just started to teach them while continuing his walk. A crowd came. He began to teach them as he walked along. There's no suggestion that Jesus stopped, found a good place to give a lecture, settled in. At least in Mark's telling, it seems that when God does a new thing, there's no time to waste. But then someone catches Jesus's attention, and he actually stops. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. If you've spent any time in church at all, you know well that tax collectors were no one's favorite people. To this day, most people probably aren't thrilled to get a tax bill, but at that time, Jewish tax collectors in particular were seen as traitors by their fellow Jews, both because of their collusion with the Roman oppressors and because they were notorious for cheating as much as they could get away with. They were often seen as a disgrace to themselves and to their families. Now, as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that maybe these tax collectors got a bum rap. Maybe they weren't actually as dishonest as people made them out to be. But it's certainly true that they had a reputation for dishonesty and that they were widely disliked because of that. So whether they deserve the reputation or not, the point still stands. They were unlikely people for a rabbi to choose as his students. So Jesus comes upon Levi, essentially operating a toll booth. He's stationed along a major trade route running from Damascus to Egypt through Capernaum, collecting tolls and customs from those on foot and those traveling by boat. Jesus sees him sitting there, and all Mark tells us is that Jesus said, follow me, and that Levi got up and did just that. Levi got up and followed him. Simple as that. The way Mark tells it, it reads like a spontaneous decision. There's no prior interaction between the two of them. Jesus just comes along and calls him and Levi gets up. Maybe it was a spontaneous decision, but that seems unlikely. Remember, Mark has been making a point of highlighting Jesus's growing popularity. To really mix metaphors, at this point, Jesus is a rising star in a very small pond. So if Levi was collecting taxes on a busy trade route along the Sea of Galilee, it seems probable that he had at least heard of Jesus, possibly had heard him speak, maybe had even witnessed one of his miracles. Either way, Although Mark tells us nothing about what comes before this moment in Levi's life, we know that Levi has a backstory, as we all do. Those of you who are familiar with the TV series The Chosen may remember this episode, in which Jesus calls Matthew. The way The Chosen imagines his backstory, Matthew is really enjoying the wealth and status that come along with collecting taxes. We see him taking great pride in his fine clothes and jewelry. But on the downside, his parents aren't speaking to him. They see him as a traitor. The chosen imagines Matthew's parents as rejecting him, and that's certainly possible. But it's also possible that Matthew was a good son to his parents, that he used some of his earnings to help support them, and that he was planning on buying them a nice house, and now all of a sudden that's gone. Either way, what will Matthew's parents think of his decision to walk away from his old life and follow this rabbi? Each of us has probably experienced that pressure of having to make a decision for ourselves while also bearing the weight of our friends' and family members' opinions about it. Will Matthew's parents regard his decision as a wonderful development or as a dangerous path? Good news, our son has stopped selling out his people to line his own pockets. Bad news, he's now attached himself to a crazy homeless preacher who thinks he speaks for God. That's all just speculation, of course, but the point is, Although Mark doesn't give us Levi's backstory, we know for sure that he had one, that he had a life before the moment that Jesus called him. And we can imagine what it would have been like and what it would have cost him to turn away from that life. A fisherman who leaves his nets can always go back. And we know that many of Jesus' disciples do fish again. After all, disciples have to eat too. But a tax collector who walks away from his post can probably never go back. At any rate, at this moment, Jesus calls him, and Levi has to make a decision. Will he follow, or won't he? But that's rather an oversimplification, isn't it? It's not really just one decision, but many all at once. Who is this rabbi? Is he trustworthy? Is he even sane? What is he trying to accomplish? Why is he calling me? Do I want to get involved? What will I become if I go? What will I become if I don't. At that precise moment, what Levi really has to make a decision about is who Jesus is and whether he wants to intertwine his life with Jesus's. Picking back up in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Mark doesn't tell us anything about what happens between when Levi got up and followed him in verse 14 and Jesus having dinner at Levi's house in verse 15, but we can imagine there had to be some developments here as Levi gets up from his booth and starts walking away with Jesus and his disciples, right? As far as we know, Levi was the first and only tax collector to become part of the Twelve. How would the other disciples respond to him? Would they be welcoming or suspicious, encouraging or hostile. As Mark tells it, immediately after calling Levi, Jesus throws a dinner party at Levi's house, which seems to have been one of Jesus's favorite moves. Hey, come follow me, and the first place we're going is your house. What's for dinner? So there's this big party at Levi's house, with Jesus and Levi and the other disciples, and a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners stop by too. From the way that Mark describes it, it sounds like everywhere that Jesus went, tax collectors and sinners just showed up around him. They were that attracted to him. Which kind of makes me wonder if people who society rejected back then were so attracted to Jesus that they just showed up wherever he went, is that also true today? Are people who society rejects now attracted to Jesus' followers now? Do we make today's tax collectors and sinners feel the way Jesus made tax collectors and sinners in his day feel? Anyway, as the party continues inside Levi's house, some religious leaders come along and get wind of what's going on inside, and they demand to know what's going on. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Though the question is put to his disciples, Jesus takes this one himself. He seems to have thought it was an important question with an important answer. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the behavior of Jesus' dinner companions that these observers should be focused on. It's Jesus' identity. For those who understand that Jesus is Israel's Redeemer, who has come to save anyone in need of saving, his choice to befriend a band of social pariahs makes perfect sense. But for those who don't understand this identity, or who don't or won't or can't believe it, Jesus' choice of company is appalling. It's not only Levi who has to make a decision about who Jesus is, but everyone who comes into contact with him. When God does a new thing, it calls for a decision. Wherever he goes, whoever he meets, Jesus provokes a decision about who he is. And the difference between those who respond positively and those who respond negatively is stark. Those who respond positively don't simply express interest in learning more. They don't just decide to go along for the ride for a bit and see what happens. They drop everything and make a total commitment. Eventually, some of them will stake their very lives on the question of Jesus' identity. And those who respond negatively to Jesus don't usually just walk away. They don't just ignore Jesus. They plot to kill him they try to throw him off a cliff. Everywhere he goes, Jesus provokes a decision about his identity. I think one of the reasons Jesus provokes such a strong response is that when we make a decision about who Jesus is, that always implies a decision about who we are as well. It's deeply personal. Are we with him or not? Are we for him or against him? Are his values our values? Do we want to intertwine our life with His? I know that it's been deeply personal for me. To give just one example, in times of relational tension and conflict, I've felt pulled between the very human tendency to protect my own interests and the way of Jesus, who invites us to put others before ourselves, and who modeled this perfectly in His life and in His death. Any time that I have been able to choose the way of Jesus over my own way, I've not only been the better for it, but somehow, mysteriously, I've become a little bit more myself. So the decision about Jesus is a deeply personal one. Mark's narrative here in the middle of chapter two sets this up beautifully. Immediately after describing Levi's call and decision to follow, Mark places us just outside Levi's house, peering in at the dinner party happening inside, overhearing both the sharp critique of the leaders huddled together nearby. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In framing the story this way, Mark demonstrates that our decision to follow Jesus, our recognition of Jesus' identity, and our awareness of our own identity are all intimately connected. Those who know that they are sick know that they need a doctor. When they find that doctor, they will do almost anything to get access to their care. Conversely, and especially in a culture that knows nothing of preventative medicine, those who don't believe they are sick think that they have no need of a doctor. And so the care of a doctor is at best unnecessary and at worst offensive in its implication that there's something the matter with them. But of course, the whole doctor, healthy people, sick people thing is a metaphor. And Jesus isn't really talking about physical health at all. Those who are self-righteous don't realize their need for salvation, but those who know their own brokenness do. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners, Jesus says. As I wrestled with this passage this week, something in this short line was trying to get my attention, and it took me a little while to figure out what it was. Eventually, I realized that it was the word call and its connection to the word sinners. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. At least in this particular instance, what Jesus says he does with sinners is certainly not to condemn or judge them, but it's also not to fix them, not to heal them, not even to save them, but to call them. He summons them. He invites them. He presents them with a choice. Do you want to come with me? It's not a demand. It's an invitation. What I hadn't previously noticed in this passage is the connection between our recognition of our own sinfulness and our decision to follow Christ or not. If you've spent any time in church at all, you know that we talk a lot about facing our own sinfulness and recognizing our need for a Savior and putting our faith in Christ to receive His forgiveness. And we also talk a lot about following Jesus. But I don't think we often connect those two things—our need for a Savior and that Savior's invitation to follow Him. Two connections come into view as we spend time with this passage from Mark. First, Jesus is inviting us to become agents of our own healing and in the healing of others. He doesn't want us to just passively receive. He wants us to actively follow him, to join him in his work, to be partners in his mission. And second, the decision to follow Jesus will surely cost us something. And so we will only say yes if we know that the reward is so much greater than the cost. Only when we know ourselves to be sinners in need of a Savior will we be willing to drop everything to follow that Savior. It's like the parable that Jesus tells about the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. If you're desperate for a Savior... No sacrifice will be too great to be with him. So what about for us? Are we looking for a savior? Do we see ourselves among those whom Jesus calls? Some of us may have decided long ago to put our faith in Jesus and receive his forgiveness, but do we still know ourselves to be people who need a savior? Are we still willing to drop everything to follow that savior? And some of us may be making that decision for the first time. Maybe you've come to realize your need for a Savior. Maybe you found one in Jesus, and you're ready to put your faith in Him and receive His forgiveness. If that's you, if you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus, please reach out to me or, of course, to Pastor Brian or Pastor John. We'd love to pray with you and for you as you take that step. Well, let's circle back to our friend Levi one last time and look at the long-term consequences of his decision to follow Jesus. We know that the story of his decision doesn't end at that moment. That decision is just the beginning. Its impact will continue to unfold in unexpected ways. That's the nature of decisions. No matter how carefully made, there are always unforeseen consequences, both positive and negative. As we think about the group of people gathered for dinner that night in Levi slash Matthew's house, on the first night of his new life as a disciple of Jesus, we can imagine how that decision would begin to unfold. He had just walked away from his tax collector's booth to join Jesus and his followers. A radical decision. But he continues to be surrounded by tax collectors. Hardly a clean break. So would he continue to hang out with friends and associates from his tax collecting days? We can imagine the other disciples maybe urging him to drop those ties, and Jesus may be encouraging him to keep them. And what skills from Matthew's former trade might prove useful in his new life as Jesus' disciple? Maybe keeping track of taxes had taught him to pay careful attention to details and the importance of keeping records. Maybe Matthew, the former tax collector, would decide to keep a careful account of everything that Jesus said and did and write it all down for safekeeping. And what about his lifestyle? Would he miss the safety of a steady income, the comfort of having more than enough, Would he ever be tempted to try to get that back somehow? He may have made a decision, but he will still have to be in constant discernment. What from his old life will he take with him, and what will he have to leave behind? And that's true for all of us as well. We may think that if we decided to follow Jesus long ago, that decision is behind us. But like any decision, its impact will continue to unfold in unexpected ways. We change. We grow. We learn new things. There are unexpected consequences. There are factors that we couldn't have known to weigh when we made the decision in the first place. The decision to follow Jesus is too important a decision to be made only once. There is always a decision to be made. There is always something old to leave behind, even for those who have been following Jesus all their lives. There is always something new to pick up. Following Jesus looks different at different points in our lives, so it's a decision to be made again and again. So what does it look like right now, today, for you to say yes to following Jesus? What from our old life will we take with us, and what will we need to leave behind? But also, maybe even more importantly, what brand new thing, what new skill or relationship or attitude or commitment will we need to pick up? If our God is doing a new thing, shouldn't we be doing something new, too? That new thing isn't always or even often going to be a dramatic, career-change, leave-your-father-in-the-boat-with-the-hired-men kind of moment. But it will almost always disrupt the status quo. Pastor Brian mentioned that one of the reasons he loves Mark's gospel is that Mark is a great storyteller. Brian defined a story as any piece of writing that makes the reader ask, What's going to happen next? So what's going to happen next in the story of your call to discipleship? If nothing else, I hope that this series has inspired in you a curiosity about your own story, about the new thing God is doing in your life right now. Maybe you know what that is already. Maybe God has put an invitation on your heart, you've heard it loud and clear, and you're one of those quick decision makers, and you know what you need to do, and it's just a matter of doing it. If that's you, you're excused from the rest of the sermon. You can just skip ahead to the end and rejoin us for prayer. But for the rest of us, for those of us who hear Jesus' invitation a little more quietly or who take a little more time deciding what it means, let's take some time together now to discern using what we've learned so far in the series, as well as guidance from our connections pathways. Remember our connections pathways? Be curious, grow with practice, find community, make an impact. In week two of the series, we focused on repentance, or to put it in less churchy language, the decision to turn around. Maybe for you this season, deciding to follow Jesus involves turning away from something and towards something else, creating space in your life for Jesus to draw you closer to himself and help you be more like him. Repentance is an ancient discipline and form of spiritual preparation. As a spiritual discipline, repentance can help us clear away the old self and make room for something new. It's why we observe Lent in preparation for Easter. So especially if you're not quite sure what saying yes to Jesus might look like you, for you right now, let me encourage you to lean into repentance and spiritual disciplines more generally, and our pathway of growing with practice. We have seven practices for you to consider leaning into. Prayer, scripture, meditation, which includes silence and reflection, searching, or investigating and wrestling with faith, Sabbath, giving, and fasting. At our Journey Resource Library at grace.org slash JRL, you'll find simple suggestions for incorporating each of these practices into your life, as well as books and podcasts and videos for exploring each one. Pick just one practice and lean into it this Lent. In week three, we talked about believing and sharing the life-changing message of Jesus. If you feel like you don't share your faith because you don't know how to talk about your faith, then maybe finding community is your next step as a disciple. Maybe it's time to circle up, to form some new relationships, to gather with others to explore the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection together. This could be a Lent group just four weeks long or the Alpha course after Easter— Or you could just take the plunge and join a life group or a men's or women's group. I promise, they're not that scary. In week four, we learned that if we want something new in our lives, we'll probably have to let go of something old, something familiar and comfortable. When God does a new thing, it always upsets the status quo. God's new thing might require us to consider adopting new postures, taking new approaches. It might mean letting go of old certainties, loosening the grip some of our old assumptions have on us. So if that message on change unsettled you, it might be that for you right now, saying yes to Jesus involves leaning into our pathway of being curious. It might mean asking God to show you an area of your belief or practice that needs to shift. Earlier, I posed the question of whether Jesus' followers today have the same attitude toward the tax collectors and sinners in our world As Jesus did? Do we make those on the outskirts of society today feel welcomed, accepted, and loved as Jesus did? Or do we sometimes do the opposite? What might happen in the church if we were to bring that to prayer? If we were to ask God to help us lay down any old ways, old ideas, even old interpretations of Scripture that might be getting in the way of the new things God wants to do in and through our church? Then just last week, we wrestled with the need for healing—for ourselves and for those we love. We learned that in the kingdom of God, Jesus is still healing in seen and unseen ways. Today, we discovered that in calling us to discipleship, Jesus is inviting us to become agents of our own healing and in the healing of others. If that reminder of Jesus' healing ministry spoke to you—if it energizes you to think about experiencing healing yourself by joining Jesus in His mission to restore the world— then let me encourage you to lean into making an impact this season. Find out more about our work with immigrants and refugees, get involved with our brand new fostering initiative, join one of our mission's prayer or care teams, or just make room in your schedule and in your heart for someone in your life who needs a little extra care this season. Make an impact in that person's life. Making an impact sometimes means letting go of some of our valuable resources, our time, our money, our carefully ordered lives to be a part of someone else's story, or maybe even to enter into the chaos of their lives. So let me make this personal for just a moment as we close. What's my next step as a follower of Jesus? I've been praying about this quite a bit, and I think my next step, what Jesus is calling me to at this particular stage in my life, is to let go of clarity and certainty. To grow in my comfort level with unresolved questions and imperfect answers, to be more curious about what leads people to hold the positions they hold and to make the choices they make. I love efficiency and order and clarity. I like clear plans, clear instructions, clear thinking. I like to know exactly what my day will look like. I like to make nice, neat lists and to check them off. And clarity can be a good thing, and it often is, But it is sin in my life when my desire for efficiency and order is stronger than my willingness to be interrupted by a human need. And I've always been a very black-and-white thinker, with firm ideas about right and wrong, justice and injustice, fairness and unfairness. And there's certainly some good in that. It makes me a passionate defender of the weak and the vulnerable. But there's also a shadow side to it. It can make me strident and inflexible and judgmental. It can get in the way of relationships with people I'm called to love and shepherd. So for me, I think that saying yes to Jesus right now means letting go of clarity and order and certainty and embracing the mystery and mess we all are. There's an ancient saying in the church, to stand still on the road of God is to move backward. Followers of Jesus are always on the move. So what's your next step? Let's take some time together now to pray about that. And as we enter into prayer, I'll just give you a quiet moment to be still in God's presence, to let the things we've been wrestling with these past six weeks settle, like sediment in a lake. So let's just take a moment now and let God quiet the waters of our soul. And then we'll see what rises to the surface. Lord our God, loving Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are always doing something new in our lives and in the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the invitation to follow you, to join you in your mission of healing and restoration. Lord, free us from whatever is holding us back, from a wholehearted yes to you, whether it's fear or doubt or complacency or pride, insecurity, or uncertainty about where you're leading us. Send us your spirit to light the path forward. Show us what it means to decide to follow you here and now at this particular stage in our lives. Show us what you're inviting us to lay down and what you're inviting us to pick up. Give us the courage to take whatever step you're calling us to. And may we experience the joy and peace of your kingdom as we walk together in Jesus' name, amen.